Welcome to Uprooted, a podcast from IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Johan Cabert. Each episode of Uprooted follows a story that connects the dots of agriculture and trade. What might seem obscure and technical on the surface actually impacts every aspect of our daily lives. We want to unearth the fascinating hidden stories that trace their roots back to policy. If you like what you hear, check out the IATP website for more on recent events, webinars, papers, and policy. Our last episode explored the basics of trade and trade policy. Today, we're diving into current events. Donald Trump notified Congress about his plans to renegotiate NAFTA in July, and stated that the process would begin in mid-August. We'll explore the fascinating background of the policy that has attracted so much ire from Trump and many others. How did it get started? And what has been the impact? More on NAFTA in a moment. You're listening to Uprooted from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. It seems Trump has been talking about NAFTA nonstop, ever since he started his presidential bid. I wanted to know why. What's the purpose of resurrecting an issue from the 90s? We wouldn't want to keep listening to a soundtrack by Seal, The Counting Crows, and The Cranberries, would we? So why go back to that era's politics? Post-World War II, um, there, there were a number of trade agreements, but they were generally between countries that were at uh, similar levels of development, you know, um, as far as industrialization and technology and uh, similar workplace protection. I went back to Josh to find out more about the inception of NAFTA. Hi, my name is Josh Wise. I'm the Director of Development and Communication at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. NAFTA was was really the first agreement that took um, countries that were at really different stages of development, uh, Canada and the U.S. on one end and Mexico on the other end, and um, lowered the barriers to trade between all three countries. The idea for NAFTA was came out of uh, Ronald Reagan's campaign as having a common North American market, which is somewhat similar to the European Union. Reagan did it, negotiate a free trade agreement with Canada, um, which uh, came into force in 1989. Um, and pretty, pretty much immediately after that, uh, George H.W. Bush uh, started the NAFTA negotiations. So the basics. NAFTA stands for North American Free Trade Agreement. It came about in the early 1990s and was one of the largest free trade deals ever. Bill Clinton officially signed it into law in 1994, after the administration and President George H.W. Bush hammered out the details. Basically, the idea was that barriers to trade, like taxes on imports and tariffs on goods, would be lowered between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. It also set groundbreaking rules on protections for investors and how to deal with differing standards on things like food safety. This was all done through an agreement negotiated by representatives of the three governments. NAFTA would, in theory, lower the cost of goods and increase trade and profits. That's not exactly what happened. 
NAFTA was really controversial. And I mean, you know, Ross Perot ran his whole independent campaign in 92 on the giant sucking sound that NAFTA was going to create of jobs from the U.S. going to Mexico. And so it was a big deal. But Clinton was the pro-NAFTA. Perot was right in some respects. His famous claim sounds very similar to the message Trump used during the 2016 campaign. We have got to stop sending jobs overseas. To those of you in the audience who are business people, pretty simple. If you're paying $12, $13, $14 an hour for factory workers, and you can move your factory south of the border, pay a dollar an hour for your labor, have no health care, have no environmental controls, no pollution controls, and no retirement, and you don't care about anything but making money, there will be a giant sucking sound going south. So we, if, if the people send me to Washington, the first thing I'll do is study that 2,000-page agreement and make sure it's a two-way street. Both persuaded blue-collar voters to vote for them by saying that NAFTA caused the loss of manufacturing jobs. The fact that Perot's claim is one of the most famous aspects of the 92 presidential campaign is a testament to the importance of the debate over NAFTA. Josh explained that free trade is a kind of Trojan horse. Bad policy disguised as an appealing but hollow false idol. A lot of it is people see like spreading American values to the rest of the world and like they really believe that the only way to lift peasant farmers out of poverty in Vietnam is to get them into a factory, you know, um, which is not supported by data, but there's this really strong narrative and, you know, and you have uh, the majority of economists who want to talk about, you know, the necessity of free trade. That's because economists tend to focus on fiscal figures, numbers that don't necessarily reveal trade policy's true intent. From basic observations of the economy, it can be difficult to evaluate changes in the U.S. and the countries negotiating the agreement. It's easy for economists to miss the impact policy has on wealth distribution, quality of life, and working conditions today, five or 15 years from now. It's misleading to simply reduce a policy to numbers. The real, everyday impact it has is on regular citizens, not economic markets and stock portfolios. Just because, it, you know, you can demonstrate that a country will benefit by lowering barriers to trade um, says absolutely nothing about who benefits, right? Let's clear up the idea of how trade impacts a country with an example. Start with a fictional country with a GDP of $1,000. There's a population of 10 each with 100 bucks. I know, pretty small country. Now, open it up to trade, the GDP increases and is doubled, becoming 2,000. The caveat is, only one person gains. Now that one person has $1,100, and the other nine people still have the 100 they started out with. A free trade economist would look at this example and say, this is great, trade doubled income and boosted the economy. But, in reality, that influx of cash only helped one person. Everyone else stayed at the same level or suffered by comparison. That's why free trade can look really good, but, in actuality, be terrible. This is especially true 
for the people already in power who have a big stake in the economy. But that shiny outer surface ignores a huge subset of the population, in our example, 90%, and those people eventually get exploited by inequality and the rotten ideas hidden at the core. The whole scenario seems pretty messed up. And it is. But how did it get that way? Why doesn't trade benefit everyone? It should, right? If you trade the extra tomatoes you grew from the garden with your neighbor, he'll agree to help fix your garage. But both of you benefit and are happy with what you got out. This is how trade ideally works. It should be fair. So the United States Trade Representative uh, is in charge of putting the agreements together, and USTR is part of the executive office of the president. And so as a diplomat, are, uh, they're able to keep things classified, keep their negotiations classified. They obviously take input from a bunch of different stakeholders. Some of those stakeholders are able to be put on panels for negotiation and have access to the negotiating text. They're called cleared advisors. Um, and in the case of USTR, there are anywhere from like five to 600 clears, cleared advisors on a trade agreement. And about 90% of them come from corporate interests. Generally, people from civil society get shuttled into the labor and environment chapters, even though the most important stuff for them could be happening on telecommunications. You know, it's an alternative system of lawmaking where the lobbyists get to write the laws behind closed doors. So the process has always been really shady, and there's some... The people who wrote the laws wrote it in their favor. That's what happens when you get a lot of Aaron Burrs. They don't want to be in the room where it happens. <laughs> there are a bunch of alternatives to having these trade agreements where you're ostensibly, you know, promoting American values abroad uh, and using trade power to do it, but are not you know, wholesale giveaways to multinational corporations. Trade agreements are not only about tariffs. They're really an economic constitution for corporations. The big part of our criticism of trade agreements in general is that the way they're set up, it's inevitable that big corporate interests are going to hijack the process. Um, you know, the process is undemocratic. The process is not transparent. It's, you know, it's just, it's this wildly convoluted process that gives access to people who can buy their way into the room. The result of all this is that corporations and the 1% benefit insanely from free trade. In exchange, workers and average citizens suffer from reduced regulations and the loss of jobs. The consultant class uh, just really doesn't get how big of a deal trade policy is to uh, blue-collar voters, you know, because they remember NAFTA, they've experienced the effects of NAFTA. That's precisely why there was resistance to NAFTA in the 90s. There were major backlashes in the United States and from the rest of the world as well for people saying, no, this is a major corporate giveaway and it's going to destroy our environment and it's going to be awful. The 90s were a time of grand trade deals, great visions, and yes, unfortunately, bowl cuts and bucket hats. You have the fall of the Soviet Union and all of a sudden capitalism was going around the world and you've got all this foreign investment flow 
flowing everywhere and free trade is going to be how we're going to spread democracy and that whole battle really raged throughout the entire 90s and culminated kind of at the battle of seattle and there really hasn't been major gains since then the fight for better trade policy is ongoing trump isn't the only one to cite the problems caused by nafta unfortunately his assessment isn't nuanced enough he doesn't recognize the environmental and labor safety issues NAFTA has created. His focus is one-sided, and he completely ignores the ways in which NAFTA has hurt other countries just as much, if not worse, than it has damaged the U.S. Though I hate to disagree with Portlandia, NAFTA truly was the dream of the 90s, and through its continued existence, the dream of a globalized world open to free trade and international development lives on. Unfortunately, we're in the 21st century now. It's time for that dream to get updated or satirized by Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein. Trump's evident plans to renegotiate NAFTA are both promising and terrifying. It's time to put our principles in action and create a just and fair trade policy. The 90s called. They want NAFTA renegotiated. We'll get into that next time on Uprooted. Uprooted is produced, written, and edited by Colleen Borgendale and Johan Cavert, with help from the rest of the IATP staff. Website and graphic design by Colleen Borgendale. Special thanks this episode to Josh Wise. Our theme music is edited from And Blessings by the Orchestral Movement of 1932 under Creative Commons License BYSA 2.5. For more information, go to the IATP website, www.iatp.org, follow us on Facebook, or email us at uprootedpodcast at iatp.org. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. And we'd love it if you subscribed or took a minute to give us a review. We're a new podcast, and we want to hear from you. Thanks for listening.